This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Welcome to Oh God, What Now? I'm Ros Taylor. On today's show, Parliament is in recess, but we're not. It helps students write their essays, but it's still rubbish at podcast scripts. Also, it might wipe out the human race. Just how concerned are we about the rise of AI? Plus, the government is planning to ban adverts for vaping that they say are aimed at children. Is Sunak's crackdown Britain a betrayal of the free market ideals they used to hold dear? And in the extra bit for Patreon backers, we look at wish cycling, or trying to recycle stuff that should just have been thrown away. Are well-meaning bin fiends making the problem worse by accident? Let's meet the panel. Marie Leconte is a columnist and author of Escape, How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed and Survived the Internet. Hello, Marie. Hello. You've just written about ambition and you say you're not very ambitious. Is that true? It is, yes. No, and, and it's kind of something I had an epiphany about a few months ago when I thought, this is weird. I feel like there's a kind of like hunger that I used to have that I don't have anymore. And, and I did a fair bit of soul searching, you know, what's happening to me? Like, am I depressed? Like, is this a bad thing? And then I was like, no, it actually turns out that I, I was always aiming for something quite reasonable in that I, I wanted to rent quite a nice one bedroom flat and I wanted to have a decent sort of day-to-day life and be able to go on holiday, you know, about twice a year to Italy or Spain. And that was that. And now I have that. And actually that's fine. And, and, and it's been quite striking because I think I know a lot more traditionally ambitious people who have that and more and are still clearly you know trying to get even more and more and more whereas I'm kind of like yeah guys I'm good now thank you so much I'm I'm happy all good but I reckon you're just not in it for the money so much as, as some of the people many of the people perhaps who you work with you know work with or uh, have to talk to as part of your job in politics and that's different isn't it because being ambitious personally ambitious is not the same as wanting to make money that's true. Well, I, I, I suppose that my ambition is to work as little as possible, um, <laughs> effectively, where all I want, and that's kind of what I say in my, in my column, you know, my ambition is that I want to be able to have a bath at 4pm if I want to on a weekday. And, and, and I'm entirely serious about this. I know it sounds like a joke, but I am so wedded to my 4pm bath. But yes, yeah, so I suppose you know, I, I am ambitious in the sense that I have very high expectations, I think, for my routine and my day-to-day life. I want to be able to occasionally say, actually, I do not want to work today. I'm going to go to the Tate, which is actually what I did yesterday. And yes, yeah, so, so far that's working out quite well. But, but you know, the, the more serious point, I suppose, is that, which, which I made in the piece as well, is that life is getting so expensive that, you know, I, I'm not sure how long, how much longer there's going to be space for people like me when, you know, you, you'll just keep needing to earn more and more and more money in order to just kind of stay even. Well, hopefully we can keep you on board for a bit longer. And I'm sorry to have deprived you because we record at 4.30, so you've <laughs> almost certainly missed out on your four o'clock bar it's, I, I will be making no comment, but yeah. 
Arthur Snell is the host of Doomsday Watch and author of How Britain Broke the World. Hello, Arthur. Hi there. The Russian army took over the Ukrainian city of Bakhmut last week and Moscow was hit with a large drone attack for the first time in the war. What's the thinking behind the strategy of hitting Russia within Russia itself? Yeah, so this um, drone attack didn't really do that much damage, but it it hit an area of Moscow where middle class, uh, fairly well-to-do people live. And I think uh, the strategy there is Ukraine and To note at this point, Ukraine have claimed that they didn't do it, but I think it's probably certain they did. Uh, Ukraine trying to show the Russian middle classes that being in a war isn't just about something that you might watch on sort of evening TV discussion shows, but it has some impact on them as well. And, And trying to sort of drag the ordinary Russians into the war in the way, of course, that ordinary Ukrainians are dragged in on a daily basis. That that's that's what's going on here. Is there a risk, though, that it uh, backfires in that Russia says, well, now you're attacking us in our territory? You know, it's clear that Ukraine is attacking Russia rather than merely defending itself. Yeah, there is. And and it's very interesting to see that we are, um, we are we're seeing the escalation that people talk about uh, because there have also been these these admittedly very small, but there've been operations on Russian soil by ground troops again. Uh, it's said that there are purely Russian sort of partisan or, or or kind of opposition Russian forces, but they've certainly come out of Ukraine onto Russian territory. And when you look at the reluctance that the White House has shown towards uh, letting the Ukrainians have the F-16 fighter jet and the ongoing debate about whether Ukraine should have a roadmap to join NATO, by which I mean a clear process rather than just an ambition that they'll join NATO at some point. All of this reflects the fact that I think the Biden administration is very nervous about this idea of the war escalating, and particularly about the idea of it escalating at the same time as as Joe Biden is fighting what might prove to be quite a difficult re-election campaign. It's a new and worrying phase. Our special guest, Zoe Grunewald, is a political reporter for The New Statesman. Welcome to the podcast, Zoe. Thank you for having me. Now, obviously, Oh God, What Now is about politics, and we're going to have some very serious discussion shortly. But first, I see on social media that you have the most gorgeous Persian cat. Tell us about this cat. I do. And thank you very much for giving me a platform to talk about my cat, because everybody (laughs) knows that's my favourite thing to do. Um, She is a lovely Persian cat. She's called Peaches. Um, I was very much a dog person growing up and my partner really wanted us to get a cat and you know when I had a cat when I was younger and as soon as we kind of took it in because it was a stray it immediately um, decided it wanted to live at the bigger fancier house at the end of the street and just left us so I've always felt a little bit bitter about cats but no we decided to get one and she is amazing and she's very sweet very docile just lovely and it's actually quite fitting because obviously today we're going to be talking about AI and the first time I used ChatGPT was when um, I was asking it whether I should name the cat Peaches or Sponge. And um, ChatGPT <laughs> told me uh, that Sponge wasn't a good name for a Persian cat, but Peaches was because it had a certain whimsical quality. So there we are, big fan. And yeah, she's great. So Well, in this instance, ChatGPT is completely right. Sponge <laughs> is not an appropriate name for a cat. Uh, no, I just wanted to come in to say that I actually went on your Twitter like a stalker to look at the cat <laughs> while you were talking. And oh, my God, yeah. I thought like, words do not do justice to how amazing this cat is. She is really, really cute. <laughs> I, I really do love her. So thank you for bringing her up. Yeah. Follow Zuri on Twitter, everyone. <laughs> we can talk about Taylor Swift next time. Yes. Well, don't because I will. 
Today we are diving headfirst into a topic that has captured the collective imagination of humanity for decades, artificial intelligence. Strap yourselves in, folks, because we're about to take you on a journey through the realm of silicon mines and the implications they hold for our future. That last paragraph was written by <laughs> ChatGPT, which is pretty reassuring when you do podcasts for a living, because I don't really rate that. Not sure what a silicon mind is supposed to be, but perhaps ChatGPT already knows and I don't. On Tuesday, the Centre for AI Safety published a statement signed by dozens of experts and scientists. It simply said, mitigating the risk of extinction from AI should be a global priority alongside other societal scale risks such as pandemics and nuclear war. That is a pretty arresting thought. Arthur, what has Doomsday Watch told you about AI since you started the podcast? Well, one thing it's told me is how quickly these things change because we did an episode on Doomsday Watch um, in our first season, which is now, I guess, uh, about 18 months ago, um, on AI. And and that's completely obsolete now. You know, the chat GPT didn't exist, all kinds of things that we've, we've now sort of come to terms with. And this is one of the factors when you, when you start looking at this question of so-called AGI, so that artificial general intelligence, this idea of a AI thing that's basically like a person, uh, some people are saying, oh, yes, it might happen in half a century. And some people think it might happen in half a decade. And and this sort of terrifying speed with which these things are developing is, is I guess, illustrated by that point. Yes, I had exactly the same thing writing my book, uh, which is now sort of second set of edits. And I've had to add in chat GPT plus extra bits about AI since I wrote it a few months ago. But are you worried about untrustworthy regimes using AI? What kind of things would they use it for? I might start by saying I'm less worried about that um, because I guess access to the greatest sort of cutting edge AI um, would not necessarily be in places like, I don't know, North Korea or or China. And and it it does seem to be the case that the cutting edge of AI is definitely happening in the US, but that doesn't make it any less scary. And of course, some some of this AI is op- openly available, so people might try to use it for developing, let's say, weapons which are otherwise banned, you know, bioweapons or, or things like that. But it, it seems as though the, the greatest risk from AI comes from AI itself. So it, it's not, you know, it's not the sort of Hollywood thing of, a, of an evil genius use, harnessing AI. It's that the AI becomes the evil genius. It's quite striking that this warning is co-signed by OpenAI and Google's DeepMind, which are, of course, actually developing AIs themselves. Is this a plea, in a way, for the government to regulate them in some way, to stop them from doing what they feel they have to do commercially? Well, this is the bit where um, it can be a bit infuriating. I'm reminded of those interviews with with Facebook senior executives, including, of course, Nick Clegg, where they say, yes, it's terrible the way that social media can cause so much harm. We need to be regulated. And you think, yeah, but you, you could do something about it, couldn't you? You could decide to be responsible. And, and we've got exactly the same phenomenon, but in a much more scary way with AI, where the, the companies that know the most about them, by definition, you know, these people who some of them come out of Google and so on, they are all saying this is terribly, terribly dangerous. Um, and they are the people who are throwing literally billions at, at developing this tech. And, and insisting that it's up to someone else to, to be responsible. Now, m- maybe that is the way capitalism works, and I'm, I'm not an anti-capitalist. You know, maybe, maybe it does require external regulation. You can't expect actors inside the system. But there is something a bit 
a bit sort of staggering about this, that these people who are developing these technologies seem to be well aware that they're very dangerous, but don't seem to be too worried about carrying on with the development. Perhaps the rationale is that if other people are developing AI to this extraordinary level, then they have to do so as well, because only a su- another super intelligent AI could fight off the threat from a super intelligent AI. I have seen that theory. Yes. I mean, I, yes, who knows? I, one of the challenges with this is, that I, you know, I, like probably uh, most of us on this discussion, I'm, I've never worked developing AI, so I don't feel particularly qualified, but I have, I've tried to read sort of intelligent assessments of it. And it, it, it if a super intelligent AI um, becomes more intelligent than humans, it doesn't seem to me obvious why it would feel the need to fight off another thing just to save humans. But who knows? So one of the most famous warnings about AI was made by a guy called Nick Bostrom. And he imagined that we would tell an AI to make paperclips, just as kind of thought experiment, and it would subvert every resource in the world diverted to that end. And it would effectively wipe us out because its number one priority would be making paper clips and therefore we wouldn't be able to make anything else. Is, it, is our fundamental problem here that our limited intelligences have, have trouble imagining what a super intelligence would do? Yeah, I mean, speaking for myself, I mean, I have a general issue with trying to conceptualise things that we talk about day to day. So things like data, things even like population sizes, the internet, these things that we interact with and we talk about often. But actually, when you try and think about the scale of them or how they work or how they interact or what the kind of mechanics behind them look like, it's very hard to conceptualise. And I think this is part of the problem when we talk about artificial intelligence is that we you know we can think about it like robots or you know how it might be used in healthcare but i think in public discourse it's actually very difficult to imagine what a super intelligent computer looks like because obviously if we knew what a super intelligent looked like and could do we probably wouldn't be needing to talk about it as much so it really is kind of beyond our, beyond our understanding and i think that has implications not only for policy but also just for the general public's understanding of it and awareness and, you know, it is, it is a frightening thing. You go back to the, the paperclip theory. If a program is functioning in a way to keep making paperclips at the expense of anything else, you know, that's that's really frightening. And who's to say, you know, it keeps making paperclips, but at what cost are we going to be made paperclips? You know, it is a very kind of frightening theory and it sounds a bit silly, but this is, you know, we have no kind of concept of what super intelligent computers could look like. And I think, yeah, I think this makes it difficult, not only for um, policymakers who have to be generalists and trying to, kind of try and understand the the general uh, background to these things, but also for the public. And yeah, I think that very much kind of has implications for how we regulate these things and how we talk about them. I've been trying to imagine what AI could do to my various jobs. How do you think it'll change yours? You're pretty early on in your, your career, so AI will undoubtedly have some effect on what you do. Mm. Yeah, I think obviously there are some forms of journalism where we've already seen AI having an impact. So, you know, when you think about this sort of content creation, which is just mainly um, done to kind of drive traffic to websites. So, you know, listicles or, you know, repurposing profiles or whatever. We, we can already see how AI could obviously create those quite easily. News outlets have already been strapped for cash for quite a while. So you could imagine that they would start to possibly, they would start to use that technology rather than having, you know, bodies on the ground doing it. What's quite interesting about political journalism, and actually, Marie, you've, you wrote about this about how Westminster um, kind of works on gossip and personalities. It's a brilliant, brilliant book. 
it is really true because so much of how Westminster works is it is very personality focused. It's getting a, you know, a relationship with somebody and getting them to trust you and getting some gossip down the pub. And, you know, in a lot of ways, that's kind of problematic that Westminster does work like that. But it does. And I can't yet imagine a future where MPs are entrusting robots with their secrets or staffers are going for a drink with a computer. You know, it, it doesn't really make sense yet. Having said that, what I think AI would be quite good at is the kind of policy analysis, which often we see lacking in when we talk about kind of Westminster focused politics, which is, you know, properly looking at legislation, looking at how it might impact people and then being able to analyse it and report on it. So you can see how it would help politicians. It might help journalists, but I can't imagine it would totally, you know, get rid of Westminster reporters yet, for example. So if it could watch House of Commons debates for me and then sort of whittle down the points I should yes. remember, I would be <laughs> super up for that. I'm normally quite anti-AI, but that is the one specific thing where I'm like, no, sign me up. Like, I never want to watch another. I think I'm still scarred from the Brexit debates of sitting there for eight hours. Yes, if it could cut through all the sort of procedural stuff, all the, you know, random bits. If it could scan Hansard and tell us when mm. someone said something interesting, that would be really good. I agree with that. It certainly does seem very good at writing essays. So I suppose <laughs> that might be a good. Thing. I suppose my, my worry is really that it doesn't so much change the Westminster dynamic as change how people want to spend their time and therefore whether we pay any attention in future into what people in Westminster are doing. But Marie, there's a lot of warnings about AI's destructive potential. But if one AI did ever gain sentience and it had to think about what's best for the planet as we might program it to do, or we might not program it to do, would it want to help us save it instead of killing us all? Well, isn't that the problem? And I think I'm going to slightly repeat, I think, what Zoe said, but we have no idea. Cause, I, mean, I think it's fair to say that humans so far, you know, and especially in the last sort of 100 years or so, I wouldn't say we have a great record in terms of saving the planet. So if you're, if you're AI, do you think you know, OK, well, actually, annoyingly, I probably do need the, you know, the naked apes uh, to do my bidding to save the planet because actually they are quite useful so I can use them as tools. Or do you go, oh, Jesus Christ, as the AI, this is me speaking as the AI, do you go, Jesus Christ, these people have done way too much damage, I will get rid of their hairless apes um, and then I will save the planets for the animals, for the better animals. So, again, that's the thing. I think we, we have no idea. And it also depends, doesn't it, on... I think one of the things that worries me as well is the people building the AI and the people working on that stuff because if you see a lot of the tech stuff that has been built over the past few years, there's tons of problems. So, for example, anything around like facial recognition, quite often faces that are not white, you know, like the machines, etc., like the programs don't respond to them as well and so on and so forth so I think whatever gets built will always uh, reflect the biases and experiences of people building them and you know everything I know about the people working in Silicon Valley does not fill me with hope. It does seem alarming that it's the very people working on this who are raising the alarm as well. It is, but it, I don't know. I find it quite irksome because it's a bit like, Mom, Mom, I think I've made a mess, Mom. It's like, okay, well, you're, you're the one working on this. You could choose to stop. You know, you, you could choose to kind of pause pause entirely and maybe, you know, sort of like have a big thing and take it back up again in a few years. You could choose to do something entirely different. Like there's, I don't know, I, I find it, and again, and that's not a new thing at all, but, you know, I think there's been that underlying dynamic in Silicon Valley for quite a long time of everything those boys build is basically replacement for their mothers. And that feels quite similar. Like, oh, please regulate us. We haven't, you know, th this is probably dangerous, the thing we're actively choosing to do. And it's like, okay, is, is that really, you know, and I actually agree as it happens. I do think it should be regulated more closely. But also, 
yeah, the, the way they're going about it, I find incredibly annoying. It's a bit like tech executives who won't let their kids have mobile phones, <laughs> <laughs> which I do feel quite strongly about. Should we have a moratorium or more AI research? After? I mean, would you like to just see if it was possible to regulate, to, to, for regulators to say, no, stop now? Should we do that? I suppose it's theoretically possible. You could sort of start passing laws. I mean, at the moment, um, there aren't that many countries that are host to the really sort of cutting edge stuff. Um, but it, it, what it, what you feel like? I mean, the, there's a case study I think with the CERN, the you know the super reactor thing by um, uh, near Geneva where people fire particles, and that's an example of something that apparently when it was set up, people felt this is too important to be sort of done and too risky to be done by private private companies. So we're going to have a sort of big sort of international UN type thing to do it instead. So so that could be then a, a case study. But it doesn't feel to me that the one that the current sort of political culture in America is mature enough, but also the political culture in Silicon Valley. I mean, if you think about what Twitter has done to Elon Musk's brain, I don't feel terribly confident that the, the people working in this space are necessarily going to be very uh, well disposed to a sort of far-sighted regulation of their activities. At the moment, it feels as though the human race just doesn't have brain space for this. If that if isn't isn't a, a terrible irony either, I mean we've had a we've had a pandemic, we've got Russia Ukraine and a, a renewed threat of of nuclear war, and it, you know as my son was telling me this morning, it, it feels like I'm not going to be living much longer. And at the moment, I I I worry that people just will turn away from this risk. How worried are we as a as a panel about AI? I'm going to risk being, you know, because obviously complacency never harmed, you know, uh, Western liberals, did it? But um, I, I, I struggle a bit to be that worried because, yes, I get all of these points about, you know, this super intelligent thing, but I still don't understand. I mean, you know, every every software item and device I've ever owned about once a week, you know, crashes. Um, I can pull the plug out and the battery goes goes you know falls out and and ultimately these things don't have arms and legs i mean in movies they're, they're terrifying robots with 10 arms I, ju- I just sort of think you could just hit it with a hammer and it was <laughs> yeah oh well that's 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 quite reassuring because we can imagine just it's, it's doing too much pull the plug time, pull the plug. <laughs> time. and if it carries on hit it with a hammer yeah. <laughs> Right, I think we may get some scientists writing in after this episode, but we we may do. I don't know. Um. I, you know I don't. I mean, obviously, I love the hammer thing so much. Um, but my my thing is actually, I'm not that worried about the whole, you know, kind of super AI destroying humanity. But I I can just see it making life a little bit worse in about a thousand different ways that we don't quite notice at first. Then we wake up in 10, 15 years and we're like, oh God, like all of life has got like 10 to 30% worse. And actually it's too late to turn back because I think a lot of tech has already done that to society. It's time for another listener question in But Your Emails. This week, it's Jonathan Buisson, and he asks, With the Public Accounts Committee warning that the Houses of Parliament could suffer a catastrophic event, Notre Dame style, before it ever gets restored, does the panel think that this would actually be the kick up the arsenal that Westminster politics needs to start some real reforms? And could the establishment resist the calls to build back every brick the same? Zoe, what do you think? Do you think Parliament just <coughs> needs to be... 
to break itself up to carry on existing in a meaningful way. Um, yes, um, I think. Look, R and R has been on the political agenda for years now. I mean, I prior to joining Westminster as a journalist, I used to be a parliamentary clerk, and in my first week, one of the things we were told by the in-house fire service. So, how many how many companies have in-house fire services? I mean, that tells you kind of a bit about the state of Parliament. That there were, I can't remember the exact number, but X electrical fires in Parliament a day. So there really is quite a, a severe risk, and I think people are aware of it. The problem is that there is the cost of R and R is huge. I think it's about twenty two billion they're predicting, and the length of time to completion is about seventy six years. And I think that's if they totally kind of rebuild um, Parliament. So I think you know there's a real there's a real need for it, but at the minute there's not a kind of political or economic climate that would, you know, allow MPs to kind of say, oh, yeah, we're going to rebuild our workplace. Um, I do think something will have to happen because I do think that, you know, there will be a big fire or a big flood or someone's something's going to fall on someone's head. You know, it's going to happen. It's going to be pushed on them. Whether it will bring change to Parliament, I think it probably will. I think, you know, when you're rebuilding or moving MPs, there'll be several questions to answer, like, do we really need five bars in our workplace? Or do we really need a chamber that just encourages people to shout at each other? And I think those questions will have real implications for the atmosphere in Parliament and how Parliament conducts business. It just depends on what kind of scale it happens, how quickly it happens. And, you know, there's other things going on in the background, like we're talking about House of Lords reform. All these things are bubbling away. I think there is an appetite for things to be reformed. But I don't know if there's going to be quite the push to completely transform just because of money, really, um, that the listeners probably um, are asking about. Yeah, I have to say the number of bars, I mean, with that amount of alcohol, the whole place is going to go up like (laughs) like a firework when it does go. We should explain what R&R stands for, because it's not in this instance rest and relaxation, is it, Marie? Uh, Restoration and renewal. Yes. (laughs) Um, but no, so I remember, so like Hannah White, who's now the director of the Institute for Government, uh, wrote a really good thing on this and kind of arguing that actually that decision should be taken out of the hands of MPs. Because actually, by definition, members of parliament will always focus on the near future because that's their job. Um, and, and which is obviously entirely fine in the vast majority of cases. But on stuff like this, actually, it probably should not be up to them. Um, but also, you know, what, what I will say, I think the, the debate on like space is really interesting because after, after the war, when they had a debate on, you know, whether they should re build the chamber the way it had been or not like Churchill was arguing unsurprisingly perhaps in favour of not changing anything and his point was saying you know we um was the quote it's we shape our buildings and our buildings shape us and yeah I mean very nerdily I would really really like MPs to at the very least move out of uh, the Palace of Westminster for a few years because I think that it would be fascinating to watch specifically a new generation a new intake come in and see if their behaviour is different uh, from the MPs who've been used to Parliament although on the bars things I'm not controversially I'm not convinced you should shut all the bars in Parliament mostly because I think the drinking would happen anyway but it would probably be in MPs offices and from the number of stories I've heard, you know, that, that that's really good. Either that or it would go down to the private members clubs or random pubs. So I think weirdly, um, scrutiny, you know, is probably best when MPs are physically on the estate, which is probably why whips actually quite like it when MPs drink in strangers, because at least they can Keep see what's going them. on. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, I remember that bit in Hannah White's book about um, uh, Parliament. And she was saying that it was Jacob Rees-Mogg, perhaps unsurprisingly, who's been one of the 
uh, most ardent opponents of decanting, it's known as, isn't it? Removing the the MPs. But I think the idea was that they might have to move to the QE2 centre, which is not very far away, but which they don't like. Anybody here been to the QE2 centre and can tell us what it's like? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Tell us, tell us what it, what's it like in there? I mean, it's just like a big sort of soulless conference hall, really. I mean, it's yeah. entirely appropriate <laughs> for some of the things that go on. I mean, yeah, obviously it's not as grand as Parliament. Um, I, I've been a couple of times, but yeah, I don't know. It's I can see why they would want to stay in the prestige with the towers and you know the many corridors and everything. Yeah, um, there, there does seem to be a sort of dislike of the QE2 centre throughout Westminster. I don't really know where that's the vibes from. are bad. The vibes are bad. Is it just because it's opposite the Abbey, so it just looks really like sort of sticks out like a sore thumb against the. Isn't it? Like, um, so many big events have happened there, so I wonder if it's just bad memories for everyone. Yeah. So I went there when Jeremy Corbyn got elected Labour leader, and I feel like that's probably not the, the happiest memory for a number of Labour people. So I wonder if like they only go there for stuff that ended up not turning out great. Mm. Um, but no, so my last point as well. So I wonder if one of the problems that there's also a complete mismatch between what people imagine Parliament is like as opposed to what it's actually like on a day-to-day basis. Because I think that, and I'm sure Zoe, you had that as well, of like when you start working in or around Parliament, you're like, oh my God, like nothing worse. You know, I went to like once interview an MP uh, and it was so hot in the room. We're all like visibly sweating, but like in a sort of like Disney cartoon or times, yeah, windows, you know, don't sh- shut properly or don't open properly. Uh, door handles fall off or like stain your hand if you try to go to the bathroom somewhere. Like it, it is completely falling apart. Or, like, you know, people in MPs offices have buckets on the floor for when it rains because the roof is leaking. So, I think there's that as well of people probably think oh my god you know they already live in this palace why would they need 22 billion of our money to restore it when it's that oh no if you were to spend a week there you'd probably see that it it is not that it's obviously falling apart in a very sort of real sense and that's why I don't think they would want to build it back every brick the same because there would be pressure from resmog types but when you look at what they did with the um, Scottish Parliament and how modern Holyrood is compared to to Westminster, I don't think that you could get away with just reconstructing it. British streets used to be littered with old face masks and positive Covid tests, but in Sunak's Britain, it's shiny NOS canisters and disposable vapes. And you know who's to blame for those, don't you? Young people, trying to distract themselves from the age of uncertainty with a quick hit of laughing gas or nicotine. Vapes are the latest problem to trouble the government. What started out as a way for smokers to kick their addiction has started a new wave of addiction in its own right. Vaping has doubled since 2020. The bright colours and sweet flavours are popular with young people, so there are plans to end a legal loophole which allows shops to offer free samples to children. So tobacco costs the NHS a great deal of money and the combination of laws, taxation and vapes have actually brought smoking levels way down past decades. So should we really make it harder to get hold of something that helps people get off cigarettes? Um, well, no, I don't think we should. Um, I mean, this announcement from um, Sunak is mostly kind of focused on preventing kids from vaping. Um, so as far as I'm aware, it's it's not really about um, stopping you know, kids who are smoking from um, starting to use vapes or, or adults who are smoking from starting to use vapes. Um, the use of vapes among people who've never smoked, I think, remains quite low um, and mostly um, experimental. So the likelihood of trying or using e-cigarettes increases with age and if you've smoked or not. So, I mean, clearly it's an issue. Um, I think something almost 10% of 11 to 15-year-olds have tried an e-cigarette and that is up slightly from previous figures. Um, and we know that there's 
bright packaging and flavors that are created to appeal to children but um i don't think you know making it harder for people who are already smoking to get vapes is a good idea and i'm not really sure that's what the government's trying to do here what i do think however is focusing on vaping as a particular kind of society societal ill that affects children is is possibly a bit strange when there are so many other issues you could possibly focus on if you want to look at children's health i mean particularly i think about you know mental health services and children's access to those also things like air pollution even alcohol and drug use you think would probably come before vapes because actually the number of children who do use vapes is relatively low um so yeah it does it does seem slightly kind of random and as you say vapes have helped get a lot of people off tobacco a lot of people off cigarettes and onto um you know e-cigarettes which is obviously a good thing we know that they 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 seem to be slightly better for us and obviously there's still a lot we don't know about the long-term health impacts of vaping but yeah it does seem like a slightly strange policy focus from the government Marie, you vape, in fact. I think you're vaping at the moment, aren't you? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, of course not. Do you, do you see it as a problem and as something that you'd rather not do or... Is it actually a positive thing that keeps you off doing perhaps more damaging things? Uh, well, you know, so for context, I was a heavy smoker for a very long time. So I was on over a pack a day for many happy years. Like, can I just say I loved smoking so much. I enjoyed every second of it. So I switched to vaping and it's great, you know, and, and I know it works in the sense that I don't smoke when I'm vaping. But if I'm somewhere and my vape runs out of battery, I would say it probably takes me about half an hour to go buy a pack of cigarettes. So it, it is very much, you know, it, it is working as intended. Uh, but no, so I think, is it, and I don't know, and I, I, oh God, I'm probably going to sound like a, an old foggy, but um, I think we should, the state should ban single-use vapes because I, I think the reason why they've become so visible, because, you know, vaping has been around for quite a long time now. Like I first experimented with vaping, was it like eight years ago, something like that? And no one really talked about it. I think it's now just really visible. So things like elf bars and all the kind of really shiny, fun, colourful, single-use vapes are everywhere. And they, you know, clearly there's a litter problem with them as well. The lithium battery as well, you know, so they're an environmental nightmare. Um, So, yeah, so I think uh, they should be banned. And more broadly, I think the idea should be that, you know, vaping used to be unbelievably uncool. I remember being absolutely mortified when I switched to e-cigarettes because they look terrible and I'm very vain. Um, and I think we should go back to that, basically. So I, I don't think, you know, you should ban everything, but just ban single-use vapes. And again, you can kind of use the environment as a cover because they're very bad for the environment. Um, and then I doubt that young people would uh, start using them. So everyone's a winner. Arthur, Australia is banning vapes, going further than we are, except on prescription. And the UK isn't planning to go that far yet. Given how addictive nicotine is, is there a case for banning them altogether? I'm sure you can make a case, and particularly, you know, people in the medical profession uh, might do that. But as someone who believes that we should be uh, certainly decriminalising and possibly legalising quite a lot of other intoxicants, and i very happy uh, to say that I enjoy drinking alcohol. I just, you know, I think that this weird thing where we ban some stuff and we allow other stuff, and it's basically, you know, alcohol is enjoyed by powerful men, and therefore no one's ever going to ban that. Um, But other drugs which are enjoyed by other groups in society get banned quite quickly. So I I just think, yes, we should tax it. Yes, we should help people. Uh, We certainly shouldn't allow children to get access to it. But I, I don't really see, is it the role of the state to stop people doing this sort of thing? That isn't an argument that's being heard at the moment, is it? Because Labour is talking equally tough, if not more so, on vapes than the Conservatives are. Yeah, but I, I don't think Labour is, in, in a classical sense, a particularly liberal party. And, and you know, look at um, Keir Starmer's views on, 
on crime and on a range of sort of related issues. I mean, after all, he, he's not he's not said he wants to roll back the most recent, um, uh, you know, uh, criminal justice bill and so on. So, so in a way, that doesn't surprise me. It is understandable, and particularly, you know, I have teenage daughter, so I, I do understand that kids are being targeted by this stuff. And, and unfortunately, un- unlike what Marie hopes for, at the moment, it does appear to be cool, or at least, you know, within certain circles. So I can see that there are issues there. But basically, you know, I think that in society, generally, banning a lot of stuff doesn't necessarily get us anywhere. What about taxation, though? Should they be heavily taxed? Perhaps oh, yeah, I'm all for that. <laughs> tax, tax it, tax it really highly, as as we should with alcohol and 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 regular cigarettes. And if we, you know, if we unbanned marijuana and so on, tax that as well. Why not? As the one vapor here, I would like to say, what's the point if you're going to make vapes as expensive as tobacco or similarly expensive? You know, sort of roughly as expensive, then no one would switch. Like that. That's why you know I'm not not just being glib, but I think that you know that's literally. I think that the state has been very good at making cigarettes too expensive for most people to smoke a lot of. And you know, and I switched because I wanted to save about two hundred quid a month, and I probably would not have made the switch if I would have only saved you know thirty quid a month. So no, either either ban or don't ban, but don't tax. Wouldn't they though? Because I mean, the <laughs> smoking is much more antisocial in terms of you know you wouldn't be sitting here in the studio smoking. No, for obvious reasons, me. it's yeah. claustrophobic hell. But you know, you you, you it, it just you you couldn't do that, and also it's just worse for your health. So you've got that incentive, haven't you? So have you ever actually vaped? Have you tried it? I have vaped. Um, I used to smoke at university. Um, so I am one of those people who really liked the menthol cigarettes. I loved mm. menthols. Yeah, my mum is gonna those. my mum yeah. is gonna hate me saying this. I loved menthol cigarettes. My mum used to smoke the vape. <laughs> she had one menthol cigarette every week when she went to see my grandmother because it was so stressful and she would sit there smoking it <laughs> as slowly as possible. It was her kind of treat to get through this. And I think that was what led to me going for them as that, well. That is brilliant, yeah. No, but I, I stopped smoking when they banned menthols because I didn't like the taste of normal cigarettes. So I, I can't, and I had a few friends who did the same thing. So I can see how, as a young person who was kind of hooked on menthols and then when they stopped doing them, I stopped smoking. So you can see how these policies do work as intended. You've written recently about how conservatism is changing. Um, Some Tories are instinctively opposed to banning things, as we saw during COVID. How does this crackdown on vapes fit with that? Because I can't see it happening in America, for example. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because banning things does kind of seem in some way sort of antithetical to some of the more, um, the the brand of conservatism we've seen recently, which is kind of a bit more Thatcherite, a bit more focused on individual responsibility. Um, To be honest, when I I heard about this vape crackdown, I wondered if it wasn't just a continuation of some of their antisocial behaviour stuff, which they've been, you know, both Starmer and Sunak have been kind of doing this crime arms race against each other and it very much kind of appeals to the kind of disgruntled parent in the voter base who is worried about their kids, the future, what they're doing. You know, this sort of small C conservative cohort of the party that wants him to take a kind of sensible, strict parenting role. I mean, this policy, it's been announced, but it's, it's relatively small fry, really. It's, you know, a three million pound funding injection. It's um, looking at clamping down on loopholes in the law for kids. I, I'm not sure it's a return to, you know, paternalism or one nation conservatism. Um, to me, it just seems more like a kind of easy win to get parents who are reading the newspapers, you know, nodding their heads and going, you know, quite right. I hate those stinky, smoky things that my kids seem to be using. Um, I think, yeah, it's, it's a bit tokenistic. And I think, you know, like you said in the intro, it's kind of like what we saw from him when they when they clamped down on NOS which is like just kind of 
triggering this um, feeling that some parents have and some people have that, you know, they're seeing empty vapes and empty NOS canisters on the pavement and they just want the government to notice. So that's really kind of how I read this policy rather than it being a specific kind of switch to, you know, a more one nation Sunak. It's interesting contrast with Liz Truss, though, because I don't think she would have she would have brought this in. And what we're seeing more and more is the kind of socially conservative side to Rishi Sunak that I don't think everyone expected. Mm. Yeah, I think it's probably, you know, in some way a little bit of a reaction to the sort of um, socially conservative part of his party that we're seeing being a bit more vocal. Um, You know, I think um, Sunak is pretty right wing in his kind of socially conservative views. I mean, they're quite tough on immigration, tough on law and order. He likes to kind of present himself as a dad who cares a lot about his children. And that's, you know, also Starmer is actually quite um, socially conservative in some ways as well. So I think he's also responding to that. And yeah, I did definitely see when they had the kind of crime week and they kept sort of, you know, outcriming each other and I'm going to clamp down on this. Well, I'm going to clamp down on this. So I think it is a bit of a reaction to that as well. Um, But you're right. I think trust is in some ways more traditionally Thatcherite in that she's just more hands-off, whereas Sunak is responding to a slightly more vocal, socially conservative part of his party. New policy idea, ban all the flavours apart from tobacco. If they're meant to replace tobacco, just have tobacco, fla- tobacco flavour, which is what I'm vaping, to be clear. So, you know, like, I'm revealing my interest here. But yeah, you should not be able to have mango chill blast because that will always appeal to 14-year-olds more than Virginia Light. You can actually get different flavours of tobacco in oh, yeah. your... Oh, yeah, yeah, you can. Oh, yeah, so you can get cigar ones, you can get light tobacco, strong to... Yeah, oh, yeah. Like, I can do an entire other podcast on vaping if you want. God, so is it is it the packaging or is it the delicious smells, do you think? Or is it a combination of both that makes them most attractive? I think it's just the fun of the fact that, A, you know, they're quite fun looking now. They're kind of, yeah, again, elf bars and similar. But also, so I tried a friend made me try, what did he buy or something? God, it was so undignified. Um, like apple iced tea something and and it was you know i i would never want to smoke it but 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 it was quite an interesting fruity taste but in that same way that i think you know you don't quite have the same taste buds at 14 than you do as an adult and you drink uh, like the most revolting things so you know like wkd blue etc and i think it's kind of the same it just it is just very fruity and sweet and also colorful and there's still the i think smoking adjacent thing of like ooh, you know it probably shouldn't be doing this it's a bit dangerous and cool do you think it appeals more to girls because whenever i see these stock pictures on you know the BBC website or whatever about vaping there's always a, a, a very cool teenage girl smoking a vape or pretending to smoke a vape more likely for the purposes of uh, of, of um, photo libraries is it something because of the pleasant smells and the fact that you're not going to reek of tobacco um, and all the rest of it that makes it more appealing to girls perhaps than it does to boys Oh, I don't know. So I think my uh, so I think it's definitely there's been a big switch. I think vaping used to be very male coded for a long time, and it's kind of switched. But which is kind of a shame because one of my favourite things is walking past, you know, quite a sort of like serious looking man, maybe you know, wearing a like big leather jacket or something with a vape that looks like an ink cartridge, and and, and you know, and you kind of walk through this cloud, and it's actually yeah, again, it, you, you you feel sort of assaulted by candy floss. Is that really you went for candy floss? You're like a forty five year old who looks quite scary. Um, but no, more seriously, I do think that. Um, yes, like 100%. Uh, I'm just going to slightly boringly agree. I do think that, yeah, it used to be mostly men when it was horrible looking big vapes. And 
Um, and now it's mostly sort of like cool girls because you can buy them in like all the colours and you can have all the fun flavours. It's just dangerous talk here, Marie. I mean, you know, we, we could be converting all our very young listeners to some, <laughs> some very dangerous habits. But there's another podcast a bit further to the left of us that suggested an easy way to stop vapes appealing to children. You suggested making them smell of tobacco, but yeah, there are other scents, you know, might be available. And it's been suggested to me that fennel or, you know, smoked salmon. <laughs> uh, what other things could we use to to basically put the kids off the vapes? Um, I was a very precocious child, so those things would not have deterred me. I would have loved a truffle-flavoured vape. I wonder <laughs> if you should maybe go for like the sort of grandparent smells so like you know like sandalwood or like mm. fresh linen or old spice i think that would be <laughs> lavender yes yeah. and i think that would put you off yeah yeah perhaps pate <laughs> I would see. I would like that. <laughs> I would enjoy that. I remember our friend, uh, like a good few years ago now, his solution to making uh, people not take up smoking was he was like, honestly, everything else seems to have like more or less felled. I think the one thing to kill smoking is that on every pack you should have a picture of David Cameron and Nick Clegg smoking and doing the thumbs up. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, because Nick Clegg is a smoker, isn't he? Yeah, well, he was anyway. Yeah, I think Rockfall, you know, the the, the scent (laughs) of Rockfall would put me off forever, personally. I would probably use that. reached the end of the show so what are the stories that have gone under the radar this week Arthur I'll start with you so uh, President Erdogan won the Turkish election that is very over the radar Uh, but what I think is under the radar which goes with this is poor old Sweden which has been waiting since last year to get into NATO and Erdogan basically blocked Sweden on a rather spurious argument about the fact that there are lots of Kurdish dissidents living in Sweden and there's been this kind of expectation that now that he's won his election, that he'll let the Swedes into NATO, which would be a big moment. Um, But I'm not sure it's going to be that simple, because he's a really sort of bloody minded person. And in a way, a bit similar to Putin, he's learned that by being very difficult and creating a lot of trouble for everyone else, he becomes a lot more important. So if he just says, well, it's fine now, you can come into NATO, then he, he, he loses that sort of sense of of the world revolving around him. So I fear that Sweden may still have several months to go before it gets let in. Zoe, how about you? So this one um, did get a little bit of coverage, but it kind of got lost again, um, which is that the Met Police Commissioner, Sir Mark Rowley, wrote to the um, Health and Social Care Services in London to basically say that police would no longer be attending mental health incidents unless there was an immediate threat to life. Uh, He said that officers were spending more than 10,000 hours a month on what is principally a health matter and that police and other social services are collectively failing patients. Um, I just thought this was a really interesting story because not only does it kind of build on that general feeling that we've been talking about a lot, that like Britain is breaking, you know, services can no longer cope with the demand on them. But I think it's also really interesting because it presents this question, which is in the broader context of us talking about reform of the Met, which is what is the police for? You know, police are meant to be responsible for community welfare as well as kind of catching criminals. But um, if they're spending, as they say, you know, almost 40% of their time on these kind of incidents, then there's clearly a bigger, broader issue with communities and mental health conditions. So I think as we go on and we continue to talk about reform of the Met, it's going to be a really interesting junction, I think, to talk about what is it that we expect from the police and what sort of service should they be providing? 
Yeah, I mean, is their job fundamentally to fight crime or do they have a wider social role? Mm, exactly. Yeah. Marie, how about you? Sure. So I think that it's one of those that that's, I think, uh, been covered a bit in Westminster, but not, not um got a lot more traction. But so the FT has revealed that Labour would ban ministers from lobbying government after they leave office for five years, which is actually an incredibly long time. And it feels like one of those stories that, you know, that is kind of exceptionally dry, but I think it would actually entirely reshape the careers of lots of ministers and lots of people. Because, you know, because at the moment, especially, I think, you know, there's, you know, especially, you know, over the past, I suppose, 13 years that you have had a lot of people kind of serving for a bit and then either leaving Parliament altogether and clearly getting into lobbying or even just staying on the back benches but but not doing much really let's be honest as parliamentarians and instead taking those jobs so I do I do wonder on a kind of longer term if they do manage to pass that and there's no reason to see why they wouldn't because again the Labour Party like Labour MPs don't do that as much as Conservative ones um, it, it, that would actually probably change the makeup of of you know benches of the Commons uh, for years to come so yeah so again quite nerdy like definitely on the nerdier side but I do think it would have quite big ramifications. Well, it's the second meeting of the European political community this week, and you haven't heard much about that officially from the Conservative Party because they don't really like to advertise the fact that we might be talking to Europe on a sensible level, even with Rishi Sunak in charge. But, you know, this is this is progress. This European political community, of course, is in no sense a replacement for the EU, but it is a body that Emmanuel Macron was keen to set up to try and bring Britain back into the fold alongside perhaps Western Balkans countries as well. And it has been meeting. So they're, they're going to Moldova. And while Britain's major interest is in talking about migration as well as Ukraine, it is still a thing to be celebrated that we are talking to Europe in a civilised way. Of course, it's particularly worth keeping an eye on because one of the things that most worries Sunak is if Italy doesn't manage to prevent uh, boat crossings to Italy uh, and lots of people come in that way, then the worry then is that those people will then try and make their way to Britain in small boats. So it's one of the things that he is trying to address. Worth worth watching on that. Thank you, Arthur. Thank you. Marie. Thank you. And Zoe. Thank you. Stay tuned for the extra bit after Demon is a Monster by Corner Shop and the traditional thank you to our patient army of generous supporters. You too could join them and get the podcast early and without ads, plus lots more. Search Oh God, What Now Patreon to find out how to get yours. We'll see you next time. Hello and big thanks from me to Rebecca Morley-Jones, Nikki Jones and 70s Robot. Huge thanks for your support from me to David Michael Pierce, Daniel Rondags and Jane Brightman. And finally, hello, best wishes and grateful thanks from me to Thomas Wilm, Mark Roberts and Craig Waite. Oh God, What Now is presented by Raspberry Ripple, Ros Taylor, Spearmint, Marie LeConte, and Salted Caramel, Arthur Snell. The group editor was Andrew Harrison's Butcher Shop Blend. The managing editor was Orange Juice, Jacob Jarvis. And the producers were Birthday Cake, Chris Jones, and me, Alex Reese. I'm quitting vaping until they do one that tastes like Barra Breath. Art direction by Carrot Cake, James Parrott, and Mark Taylor. Oh God, What Now is a Podmasters production. Welcome to The Extra Bit, exclusively for Patreon backers. For years, councils have told us what we can and can't recycle and have come up with confusingly different ways to sort it. But it turns out we're not doing a very good job of it. 
80% of us are not clear on the rules, and as a result, we often chuck things in the recycling bin that contaminate it, so the whole lot ends up in landfill anyway. It's called wish cycling, apparently. Marie, are you strict about your recycling, or do you just avoid it by trying not to eat or do anything at home? Um, oh, this is quite bad, but no, I'm not very good at recycling, and I, I still do stuff at home and eat at home. Um, but no, I basically... I only recycle the very straightforward stuff, by which I mean cardboard packaging, and the rest is in God's hands. Um, Even with, bottles? Uh, oh, no, to be fair, I just don't buy bottles of stuff. Oh, good, because um, that's a good... I mean, you, you know, buying bottles yeah, is but a no, sign I, that, you know, you're pretty depraved, isn't it? <laughs> no, I, I think my, my thing is that um, I... So I have no intention to ever drive a car. Uh, if I have kids, it will only be one and I never use fast fashion or Amazon or any kind of stuff like that. So I think that I should be allowed some treats on the other side. And yeah, one of my treats is not being very good at the recycling. Yeah, I feel like now I've got a cat, you know, basically, since it eats, she eats so much meat, it's, it seems quite pointless in a way trying to do much else. I feel very guilty about that when I could be bothered to think about it. Arthur, when I'm on holiday in France, I notice there's a different system for recycling there. Well, at least there is in the places I've been to. You don't have a doorstep collection. You have to take things to recycling bins and put them in the right holes which is actually quite satisfying I'm sure it would get boring after a while would, would that be a better way of doing it or are we just too lazy in this country well yes I mean I've also it's that sort of end of holiday ritual isn't it where you walk down and, and post all these things I doubt there's a magic system of making humans uh, carefully sort their recycling the thing that gets me are those you know the letters with the little plastic windows and I think you're supposed to peel off the plastic window and then recycle the envelope separately but whoever Are does you? that because I, I thought you were allowed to keep yes, the, plastic if you put window the, in. the plastic window envelope in with your paper recycling it's all going to go to landfill and you are just as bad as big oil oh that's terrible okay well that's one thing i've been doing wrong already and it also it varies from like council to council as well so it's yes, that's, kind yes of, of course so it's a nightmare when you, you go on holiday and suddenly you find you can't you can't recycle things that you thought you could should we just try to buy less? Is that the fundamentally the problem? I mean, I think we probably all should try and buy less. Um, but the problem with buying less is that the things you do buy need to be of a high quality in order to, you know, keep going. So, for example, those refill stations in Waitrose or any kind of fancy food shop you go to, which is supposed to help you cut back on plastic. You need the containers in the first place to go and get them and they need to be resealable and they need to go in your fridge. And actually, I don't know if anyone's tried to buy Tupperware recently, but it's quite expensive. Mm. Um, and, you know, I'm, you know, I'm unfortunately definitely guilty of someone who just buys smaller, cheaper things, worse quality, because like a lot of people in this country, I live paycheck to paycheck and I can't really afford big one off payments to kind of invest in, you know, longer term more that was a teaser for the bonus bit of this week's podcast if you'd like a little bit more oh god what now every week without ads and a day early then do yourself a favor and sign up to back us on patreon for as little as three pounds a month you'll also get our exclusive weekly minicast oh god what else every monday morning and some fabulous merchandise thanks for listening and see you next week